Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Luke 12 is where we're at. We're continuing our series practicing the practices. And the big idea here is that followers of Jesus need teaching and training. You need to absorb the truth of Jesus. You also need to practice the practices of Jesus. You need both of these to correspond with each other. And the practice that we're looking at today is the practice of generosity. And I want you to remember before we get into the practice of generosity, which just seemed like a very fitting uh, practice to dovetail with the end of missions month, is remember that all of these are a means to an end, okay? They're not an end in and of themselves. They are means to get you to the point to where you look more like Jesus, or you're spending time with Jesus, or you're joining Jesus on mission, and understand that they're pointed at a bigger purpose and a bigger goal. And all the practices, according to Jesus' own teaching, is that if you will begin to implement his truth and his ways into your life, that it will lead you to flourishing. It will lead you to the way that life is supposed to be lived, that Jesus does in fact have the best life advice for you and that he knows how we're made, how we're wired and what is best for us. And this, this is the best life advice you've ever heard, even when it comes to generosity. And what I'm going to give you today is a message that you're not going to hear from our culture by and large. Jesus' teaching on money and generosity is entirely antithetical to what our culture puts out there. And you need to know that they're wrong and why, and you need to know that Jesus is right and why. So I want us to try to understand this. And we'll begin this morning with just this idea of there is, there is a mirage of a good life that is out there. There are many mirages, but one of them is in relationship to money. And Jesus addresses this, that he does want you to flourish in your life. He also wants to warn you about things that look like perhaps they will lead to flourishing, but they're not good for you. And this is what he says in Luke 12. One of the company, verse number 13, said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Anyone have a sibling that you can never get through to, that no matter how much you talk to them, they don't listen to you? Uh, perhaps this is, uh, this is this guy, right? And Jesus, would you do me a favor? Uh, do me a solid. Tell my brother to give me my stuff, right? Jesus, will you endorse my greed? Will, will you sign off on this? And Jesus' answer, verse 14, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Right? That's not my job. No. I, no, I'm not going to do that. But I have some advice for you, verse number 15. He said unto him, take heed, beware, double warning. Take heed and beware of what? Covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Now he's not saying that stuff is sinful, take a vow of poverty. But he is saying life is not about stuff. Life is not about abundance and having more and more and more. And Jesus is saying, this is not where the good life is found. 
If you think that the good life is going to be found on having more and earning more and your nest egg growing and feeling more secure financially and getting more stuff and more toys and more clothes and and a garage that's full and an attic that's full and a fridge that's full and on and on. If you think that that's where the good life is going to be found, that's not what life consists of. Beware of that. That is, in fact, a trap. Now, that sounds simple enough, like, okay, life does not consist in stuff. Yeah, I can, I can co-sign that idea. But whether you're Christian or not, most Americans, even Christian Americans, find it very difficult to embrace this idea. And oftentimes we find ourselves being sucked into the vortex of trying to find happiness or satisfaction in our stuff. And the reason for this is because there are very powerful dynamic forces at play, both external and internal that are pulling us into the desire to have more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And you need to know what those are and you need to know that you you have to combat those. That's not healthy for you. So I wanna give you two, one external and one internal that will try to pull you into the mirage of a good life that you will not find it. You'll chase your tail. One is the external propaganda of more. There are two men on the screen here. Uh, One is Sigmund Freud. He's the older looking gentleman. You've probably heard of Freud. The other is Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, who you probably have not heard of. These, These men both lived in the early 1900s. Freud died in the 1930s, and eventually Bernays actually went on to live into the the 1990s. He had a very long life, lived to be over 100. Freud had this idea of human behavior that was new that, when I say new, it was new to most people who were listening. (laughs) That people are driven not so much by their intellect and their rationale, but people are really driven by uh, desires that they have inside, oftentimes desires that they don't express or fears that they don't express, some of which they don't even know are there. They're, They're unconscious about them, but they're there nevertheless. And that people are motivated by their wants and by their fears more than they are by their logic. This was an idea that Bernays took and said, if Uncle Freud's right then what this means is that we as humans are far more prone to external manipulation and internal self-deception than we would ever want to let on. And Bernays began to take these ideas and concepts and popularize what became known as propaganda. Actually, Bernays was attempted to be hired by an up-and-coming political party in Germany in the 1930s. He turned them down, but you may have heard of the political party called the Nazi Party. And they took Freud's idea and then Bernays' kind of explanation of how this could be played out in modern society, and they formed their propaganda machine largely around those concepts. Post-war... Bernays thought to himself, if these concepts can be weaponized by uh, Nazi Germany in a way that is evil during wartime, what could we do with these concepts during peacetime? How could we leverage them for, at least in his own mind, good? And Bernays, it was clearly on record that 
there was a change in society that there was now not just a printing press, but now you could subscribe to magazines. You could subscribe to newspaper publications. There was radio, there was TV, and that these tools could influence the masses in one fell swoop, and that someone was going to utilize these tools to influence the masses and to put propaganda out there. And if someone was going to use it, let's have the good guys, and that was himself in his own mind, let's have the good guys influence these for for causes that we think would be good for the country. So Bernays made a alliance with companies and with politicians eventually because politicians began to figure out that like this stuff actually works and you can influence people. And they began to hire him and he got several uh, presidents elected and there's so many stories I could share that are really fascinating. But there began to be in the 1950s this alliance between both politicians in D.C. and madmen of, of uh, Madison Avenue and the bankers on Wall Street that they came together to basically try to get people to buy more stuff and to pull the strings and push people's buttons to make them do it. If you think that that's like, eh, I don't know, I will quote for you. Uh, first of all, Bernays' own book. He wrote a book called Propaganda as it were. Uh, great title, by the way. And the opening lines, I, I actually found this online for free this week and read the first couple chapters of it. But here's the opening lines to, to his book. And this is all going to make sense in a minute. It'll be helpful. Propaganda starts by saying, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling world power of our country. We are governed and our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men that we have never heard of. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in the least. That's not conspiracy theory. That's just fact. That's what he believed and that's what they set out to do, was to control the minds of the masses. This began to, and Bernays' deepest work was with, uh, was with, Companies that were trying to, to sell wholesale, cigarette companies or things like that, uh, to the American people. And there began to be this idea that the economy would be way better off if people bought more stuff. If we can shift people to consume more, then there will be more revenue for the companies. That'll be better for the stocks of the companies. The whole country will win if we can just get people to buy more stuff. So you would have Victor Lebo, for example, in 1955, who said, quote, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption a way of life, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction in consumption, the very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms, we need to consume at an ever-increasing pace. Now, you may be picking up on like how those ideas and Jesus' ideas would be contrary to each other, Right? Uh, Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers said that we had to shift America from a needs culture to a desire culture. People need to be trained to desire and to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We have to shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Now, if you think that their efforts were ill-founded and that they uh, were on a fool's errand and that they were unsuccessful at all, I would encourage you to examine like your own life and realize that the propaganda of more has affected every single one of us, right? Like the idea of planned obsolescence and like your iPhone works just fine, but we're going to plan to make it obsolete a year later and give you a new one that's better and put a desire in you for something. Not that you need it. You should just have it. You know, you should upgrade it. Like 
that, that's something that has been 70 years in the making in our culture, right? The idea that we would not consume things, and I know some of you are like, no, 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 I got an old school mentality of I, I use it till it breaks, then I try to fix it, then I use it again till it breaks, and then I get something new. But I think we would all readily admit that that is an old school mentality, and that over the last 70 years, America has shifted to, if it breaks, get a new one. If it doesn't break and it works fine, still get a new one and upgrade it. And what they set out to do, they accomplished in the same way that Nazi Germany used them to, to control the masses in, in really significant ways, this has been used in our culture over the span of decades to try to produce a, a body of people who consume more. And you have to know that that's at play. If you're ignorant to that, and you, and you just think that I'm going through life and just making all these decisions by myself and no one's pushing my buttons of, of here's what I want or here's what I desire, or here's what I fear, don't be ignorant. There are external forces trying to pull you back into get more stuff. This is why Christmas is around the corner, right? How many car companies are going to put an ad on TV to try to get us to buy a car or at least want to buy a car? And what are they going to do for their ads? They're going to use these principles. They're not going to, to say, let us give you a sneak peek behind the scenes at our factory. Look at the quality with which we make our cars. They're not going to do that. They're going to put a car out there, and they're going to have some snowfall. They're going to put a big red bow on it, and the missus is going to be in her pajamas, and she's there with her eyes closed, and she's going to open her eyes, and then she's going to smile. And the message is, buy our car, make your spouse happy. But that's the message, right? What's, what's happening? They're pushing your emotional buttons to try to get you to buy stuff. And this happens over and over. Like it's a relentless wave of this all the time in our society. And on top of all that was in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, now we got social media on top of all of it. Of people mining our data and tracking our Google searches and fine-tuning this thing that already was so potent, fine-tuning it in such a way to where they're listening in on our conversations. And I'm, I'm not trying to sound like, you know, I have a tinfoil hat on and conspiracy theorist this morning. What I'm trying to say is what you know to be true. Like, how did they advertise that to me, you know? Like, we were just talking about that two days ago. We know how they advertised it to you, Right? Like this, these are the waters that we swim in. And the, the, the whole point is to let you know that there's an external pull. It's propaganda, according to Bernays, to get you to buy more stuff. And that's not a biblical idea. I'm not saying you never need to buy anything. I'm not saying that if you get a new pair of shoes, you should repent. I am saying you have so many people who are trying to get into your pocketbook and they are good at it. And you better be aware of that. And if you start to embrace the idea that if I get more, then I'll be happier, life does not consist in the abundance of things that we possess. That's not where the good life is found. But on top of all that, you have this internal pull of greed. So this is external. Much of that was, was, there wasn't Madison Avenue, you know, in Jesus' day. But Jesus is still giving people warnings about greed. Why? Because inside, there's desires and covetousness with 
without people trying to advertise to us, there's still something in our sin nature that oftentimes we want to covet and we want to take and we want to have. And Jesus warns against this. And and the bottom line of what he says and the New Testament authors is that you will self-sabotage the very happiness that you're after if you try to pursue happiness through consumptive terms. You'll hurt yourself. This is what Paul said to Timothy, and and what a a potent but straightforward warning. They that will be rich, not that being rich is bad, but if it's your your, your desire, that's what drives your life, to be rich. That's what consumes you. You fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts that drowned men in destruction and perdition. The love of money is the root of all evil, which some uh, have coveted after, and they've erred from the faith. And listen, they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. They have shot themselves in the foot. They have self-sabotaged the very life that they say that they want because they're trying to get, 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 get. And we're to the point now to where we have enough social studies that we've learned, like, surprise, Jesus was right. There's so many studies that have been done on America that while over the, the 1950s to now, we have doubled the size of our homes, like the square footage per home on average is doubled. We have gotten to the point to where people, homes that have two-car garages, 25% of them uh, can't park one car in the garage at all because it's so full of stuff. Another 35% of them can only park one and can't park two. I'm in that boat. Uh, <laughs> I confess my sins. And, and there's, there's all this stuff. But study after study shows that the more stuff people have, this was actually uh, really popular in the book, Your Life, Your Money, the more stuff we have, the lower our happiness is. That's, that's the headline from the, from the social studies. That as we consume more and get more, it stresses us out. We feel like we have to get even more. We don't feel satisfied. It's like we're drinking salt water. And we begin to, to credit card it and we begin to, to get and get. And, and there's this like fatigue of I always have to have and I always have to consume and I always have to get And Jesus is trying to warn his audience and in turn us to say, look, that's a mirage. Don't chase that. Don't chase that. If you're after the good life, it's not found in the things that you possess. You say, okay, then where is it actually found? And the, the Bible has so much to say about our money, but if I could distill it down to just a few very core ideas, here is where the good life is found in relationship to our money. Number one is in Christ. And the Bible actually connects these dots to like how our money in Christ should correspond with each other and the fact that we have Jesus should give us unique resources to be able to to handle our possessions well. Hebrews says it this way. Let not your conversation be, or excuse me, let your conversation be without covetousness. Have a lifestyle that is not marked by greed and coveting and wanting. Sounds like Jesus. But be content with, with such things as ye have. For he, Jesus, has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You get that? It is recommendable that someone not be greedy and be content, no matter if they're Christian or non-Christian. That is good advice for anybody. What the author of Hebrews does is they connect it to Christians should have a unique resource 
to be able to be content. Why? Because remember Jesus, you have him. The argument is simple. You have God. Isn't God enough? Like, if there is a deep satisfaction that you have in God, then this should give you a a, a leverage point to be able to not be so greedy all the time because you're content in Jesus. And this is actually a, a very challenging thought of like, which one rules my life more? He mentions the I'll never leave thee or forsake thee, like the presence of God or stuff. Like, think about it this way. And this is, this is a very straightforward question. It may step on your toes a little bit, but I don't apologize for it. Did you spend more mental bandwidth this week worrying about what you're going to wear or how you're going to figure out the money to get that new toy or make sure that bill gets paid? Did you spend more mental bandwidth on that than you did enjoying the presence of Jesus? And grateful that he's with you. And if it's like, well, more mental bandwidth in that direction. Man, that's telling. Like, we should want to understand if we have Jesus, we can be content in him. And it should produce in us this, this deep satisfaction. And it's out of that Christ contentment that we can have a contented simplicity with our stuff. Hebrews mentions this. First Timothy mentions this as well. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. So having food and raiment, let us be there with content, right? I love the way that John Mark Comer put this on a sermon he has on simplicity. He said over and over, Jesus and the apostles of Jesus give us the same message. The good life is not found in a new car or a dream home or fine dining or early retirement. They call us instead to a life of simple living and radical generosity, grateful joy in the ordinary pleasures of life, and above all, a deep contentment in God. Like that's the message of the Bible, is that I don't have to have and have and have and more and more and more, but if I have Jesus, I can be content with my stuff. You say, Pastor, what do you mean content with your stuff? Where's the line? How many pairs of shoes am I allowed to have? Only one? Do I have to replace them if they have holes or do I have to keep wearing them? Do I have to go get them like resold or something? I can't get new ones. Can I have three pairs of shoes? Can I have 10? Listen, Jesus never intended for his principles and his statements on life to become these little rigid rulers that you measure everybody with. He never intended that. And he never tells you. You can have three pairs, but four is too many. He never tells you, you can buy a car, but it can't be brand new. That would, that would be wasteful. You know, you drive it off the lot and it's going to lose a percentage of its value. So you better at least buy a car that's three years old. You know, 70,000 miles, is, that's okay. But if you go lower than that, that's, that's not okay. He doesn't do that, right? There is no like rubric for, well, if you have a family of four, then you can have a 1,200 square foot house. That's reasonable. That, that's simple enough. But if you have a family of five, then you can go to 2,000 square feet. So you don't want to think in those like, I'm looking for a rule. You're looking for a principle to be affixed to your heart, and that's, am I content? Or do I have to have more clothes and more guns? And I have to outdo myself this vacation compared to last vacation. I have to outdo myself this Christmas compared to last Christmas. Like, is there a contented simplicity? 
that could mean different things for different people. I'm, I'm well aware. But it's at least worth asking the question. And honestly, this is a question that I think churches ask very infrequently. And I'll raise my hand and say, I may have asked this not frequently enough to you all as a congregation because churches by and large are good at like, everything's God's. Here are the three big principles that I heard in church growing up. Everything's God's, so give him 10%. If it's all his, him getting 10% back, that's not unreasonable. That's fine. And with the rest of it, like the other 90%, don't go in the debt. Like that was the sum total, I think, of my financial stewardship package as, as a kid growing up. And those things are good principles. But what do you do with that other 90% other than try to stay out of debt? Well, you have a contented simplicity. And that may push you to be able to do some almsgiving and bless some, bless some people who have less than you. Let me push you to be able to give more than 10%. Like that, that's okay. Like it's, it's not a rule that you can only give 10. There, there should be in each of us at least we should start to ask the question, is there a contented simplicity? And if there's not, do I want it? If, if I don't want it, why? Like what's happening in my heart? So the, the way to the good life and relationship to money is you need Jesus first. You need Jesus. You also want a contented simplicity, but then you also want a very cheerful generosity. And if you can put... The, sim the simplicity and the contentment with being joyfully generous, like that is a one-two punch combo that will go a mile. Here's a little bit as to why we should have a cheerful generosity. First of all, like the Bible says so. You say, ah, that's not good enough. Well, it should be. But we, we know deep down that even more than the Bible says so, that's been our experience, Right? Like when, when the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive, or it's more happier to give than to receive, we know deep down that's true, and we've experienced that. When Proverbs tells us that he who has a, a bountiful eye, he who's looking to give shall be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Like when you walk through life open-handed, there are blessings that God puts in your life. When you walk through life close-fisted, he can't put those blessings in there. Like we've Many of us have experienced that. We know that that is, that is true. But it doesn't take us very long just to even look around. You say, I, I don't know. I've never done generosity. I've never experienced that. Well, just look at the world. Like it's based off of this idea of giving, that the sun is going to give its energy so that we can have life and warmth, and the earth is going to give crops so that we can have food, and the rivers are going to give water so that we can have drink. And even when God interacts with us in the redemption story, the father is giving the son, and the son is giving his life a ransom for many. And this idea of giving and giving and giving is baked into not just creation, but into redemption. And with those underpinnings, we come to verses like 2 Corinthians, that every man as he purposes in his heart, let him give, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? God wants you to enjoy giving. He's not this celestial landlord with his hand open, like, give me my due. Like, that's not God. He wants you to enjoy giving. You say, well, how do I enjoy it? It's scary. I don't, I don't feel like I have a lot. I don't know. I kind of want stuff. I don't know that I want to be super, super generous. Well, that's what I'm trying to accomplish this morning is to help you understand that, like, you want to be generous because that's where the good life is found. 
And you tell me if I'm lying. Is, has the good life fa- been found in chasing more stuff and chasing more pay raises so that you can consume more? And as your uh, standard of living goes up, your standard of giving doesn't go up as well. You just keep getting more for yourself. Like you tell me if you're happier with that. According to Jesus, you're not going to be. And the idea is that we as his people would be cheerfully generous. Now, how do we apply this? Honestly, there's a million ways. And you are going to have to take this and curate it to your own context. But I put 10 thoughts down that I want to give you in rapid fire of maybe how you would apply this. So first of all, just a a couple concepts that I think are very helpful. Start where you're at, not where you want to be. So if you're like, man, yes, I want to be so generous. I want to give 90% of my income away. Well, if you're at 0% right now, 90% may not be your next step. Like that may be a little ways down the road. So start where you're at and take a baby step from there. Just where I'm at today and what would be a good little next step? Because it is a journey. It's a walk. You're not going to do this all over the span of one sermon or one week. But start the journey and begin to put it into practice. I put on here, I've done this I think once maybe in the past over the last six or seven years of like our generosity journey as, as a couple, my wife and I, and I don't say this to say like, oh, we're the bullseye and like we figured this out. Not at all. But just to show like over the course of 30 years, there have been lots of little steps. And this is something that we're still trying to work out and figure out every single year. What does it look like for us? And how does this need to change or shape? But by and large, this has kind of been our journey over the span of of a few decades that we were taught as as young people to begin to tithe or take 10% of whatever we got and give it to the Lord. And we're talking like four or five of we got an allowance or we got a little bit of money for Christmas or something like that. And both of us had parents that taught us like you want to, you want to give a portion of that back. And so I'm very thankful that generosity, like this practice is one that is easier than some others for me because my, my spiritual palate was set at an early age from my parents. And I'm very grateful for that. So we had that as a foundation. By the time my wife and I got into junior high, we, we were both part of churches that had missions programs and wanted to, to bless missionaries. And so we started giving like a tithe. What, it was a little bit of money. Like we mowed lawns or babysat some kids. We didn't have a steady income, but there was a little bit of money and we'd give like $5 a week. And you may be a teenager in the room and that may be a great step for you. You may be an adult and that's your step, but we began to give maybe five bucks a week. As I got into college, I began to, to be more acutely aware of like at will opportunities where I have my rhythms and these are every single week, but I'm also going to get my head up and I'm going to look for, does that college student need a textbook that they can't afford, but I can afford it for them? Or does, does this person have a special need or can I do something for someone else and begin to deploy that a little bit? Eventually we got married and pretty early on in our marriage, I heard a sermon on almsgiving and blessing the poor. And it was convicting for me because that wasn't a part of our repertoire at all. And so we added, it was, it was not a lot of money. It was, it, was a, it was a little bit. It was like $10 a week or something, which is about 500 bucks a year. But we began to add that as a layer into like our generosity and found it to be so rewarding of like that, that was something we were just looking for opportunities specifically for those who, who had financial needs. Uh, a little bit later, this is when we were at Harvest pastoring, I had a, a, a spiritual mentor of sorts challenge me to switch our giving from dollar amounts into percentages. And what they said, and they were so right, they were so right. They said, your early years are your earning years. You are going to, 
you know, you're, you're in your early 30s, there's a solid chance that over the course of your 30s and 40s that your income will go up with age. That'll cap eventually, but that's, that's these years. You also have a wife and kids, and eventually your kids are going to grow up, and she, may, and she was a stay-at-home mom, still is, but she may start to engage in, in part-time work. And they said, I would encourage you, you're going to find that you'll be able to increase your standard of living without your standard of giving. So make anything you give a percentage. Your tithe or this or that. And so we did. We switched all of them over to percentages. It was at that time that we actually, we started, we're like, we don't want to give 10%. Like, who says we're stuck at 10? Like, let's give 12, you know? And for us, it's been fun. It's been a journey to, to give. But we switched to like, this percentage goes to missions, and this percentage goes to alms, and this percentage uh, for years has gone to our building fund. Of course, we're in the middle of building some stuff right now, and that has increased significantly for us. But the point that I'm trying to make is that there's been a progressive journey over a long period of time that for some people would be like, that's nuts. I'm, I'm not doing that. Well, that's not where you're at. Start where you're at. There are others of you in this room that would like, you'd put me to shame in, in what you give or percentage of your income that, that you give away. And you've, you've learned a lot more than I have. And you have this discipline in your life in greater ways than I do. The point is to try to make it practical and say, what is the next step for me? There could be a variety. I gave you four or five of ours over the years, but there could be variety. I, I probably already mentioned this, but priority percentage progressive. You want to make it a priority. You want it to be a percentage if you can. And then you want to make that progressive over time as you can. Here is maybe practically how we live this out today. Obviously, it's, it's missions month. This is the close of our missions month. If you're new, then I guess newsflash, you may not be aware of this, but if you've been here even last week or the week before, you know that we've kind of been building to today where we'll collect some, some commitments and some money for our missions program. And I think there's ways today to make this like really bottom shelf and really practical and that you can begin to implement this into your life even right now today. Um, and a note on that, like when we talk about our missions program, I think that we're all on the same page, but just in case we're not, all of that is, is money that goes to other people. Like that's the money we're giving away. That, that's not like a fundraising campaign to, to pay bills or put lights on. And, and we're doing fine financially there. This is like, let's, let's be generous and let's give money away as a church. Uh, but perhaps today, a good step for you. And honestly, I would challenge every one of you to do this put five bucks into missions today. You say five bucks, like that's, that, I can't do that. Okay, that, that's between you and the Lord and you may not be able to, that's fine. Many of you could do more than that. But, but to say like, hey, let me give something to the missions program today. You can put it in a little envelope that's in your, in your seat back. You can give online. I did my giving online this morning. Um, or you can choose to text to give. I think I put a number in your bulletin. If, if you want to text, you know, $5 to missions, I would challenge you, do that and take a little baby step and participate in our missions program. There may be a tithe challenge. We put that on our card starting three or four years ago, just understanding that sometimes that's a step for someone is to begin tithing, not necessarily giving to our missions program. And if so, if that's not a regular habit, put God to the test for 60 days. You say, I, I won't be able to make it. Lovingly, but bluntly, I would tell you, if your boss came to you and said, you're going to have a 10% reduction in pay for the next two months, you know what you'd do? You'd figure it out. Like, you would, you would figure it out. And that's like, I'm getting a reduction, and there's, there's no generosity. There's no, like, blessing of the Lord in this. 
when you self-impose that and you give to the Lord and then you see him show up, that's a way better way to do it. And I would encourage you to try him. Put him to the test for 60 days and see if he doesn't show up for you financially. You may be like, yeah, I'm beyond that. I, I want to give to our missions program. Great. We'll do that here in a few minutes and we'll, we'll work through our, our little missions card if you want to give to that today. I would say help your children. So as a recipient of parents who helped me as a child learn to be generous, I want to give that to my children. Simple things like get some mason jars, right? Just Sharpie on them. Save, spend, give. And as they get money, help them divide that into little buckets and help them give. Um, I was talking with my oldest, Brennan, who's, who's nine. And Brennan is, he's spiritually gifted in generosity. He's in the room and I can brag on him for, for a minute. But he just, he has an eye for that stuff. But we were talking, he said, missions month, that little card. He said, can kids do that? And I thought, man, I should have talked to him about this sooner. Yeah, kids can do that. And, and he wants to, you know, do a little something for that uh, here this year in, in his own context. But teach your kids and have conversations with them and help them pick up those habits. If you want to read a book, really, I tried to give you the shortest one I could think of. The Treasure Principle would be a short one. Um, here would be maybe a great one for some of you all if you're like, I just have stuff and it's hard for me to be content. Find something that you have an emotional attachment to. I'm not saying liquidate the whole gun safe, right? Or get rid of all your Steelers memorabilia, but maybe one of them, piece, just one gun, you know? one card or one jersey, whatever, sell it and take the money and go bless somebody else with it. Just give it to them. Find someone else who has a need and bless them with it. And that'll be hard if there's a little bit of an emotional attachment to it. That'll be hard to do. But see if it's not a freeing exercise. See if it doesn't actually help you and maybe be a, a baby step to get a little bit closer to simplicity and not having to have as much, but also being generous at the same time. And lastly, I could harp on this for a while, but I'll just leave it as it stands. Unfollow and unsubscribe from uh, newsletters, social media influencers, who it's their sole job to sell you stuff. You, you know what I'm talking about. Like every point of sale now, We'll email you the receipt, right? And they want your email. Why do they want your email? To save a tree and not print paper? No. To send you many emails about all of the things that they want to advertise to you, right? And it's, it's like, we're not even, they're not paying to advertise to you. You're just inviting it in. Or on social media, many of you choose to follow you know, best vacation ever. These people that are taking a vacation every week or whatever, or are, you know, Amazon finds you never knew you needed. And all it's doing to you is stirring up desires every single day of discontentment. Oh, I didn't know I needed that. Oh, I didn't know that existed. I need, I need. And you're buying and you're buying and you're wanting and like cut it off at the source. Realize that that may be a trap for you and be really unhealthy for you and just stop following them and don't put yourself under the waterfall of advertising any more than you already need to. So you could take those 10 and you could probably add 40 to them. I think the overall point is this. We want Jesus, we want a contented simplicity and we wanna be cheerfully generous because that's where the good life is found. You want, you want to do money Jesus' way. He knew what he was talking about. 
His advice is the best advice. Every single one of us are in a different place today than the other, and that's okay. So wherever you're at, say, I want to grow in that. I want to take a baby step in that. I want, I want to get a little better at that, and I want to see this materialize in my life a little bit more. 